0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we are speaking with Dr. Damon Scott about his book published by the University of Texas Press in 2024, titled The City Aroused, Queer Places and Urban Redevelopment in Post-War San Francisco, which is a really interesting history. It's a history of a queer environment. It's a history of urban development. It's very much a history of a post-war city trying to figure out what that means in terms of labor, in terms of um, economics, in terms of city planning, in terms of what the city wants to be. So there's obviously quite a lot to get into. So Damon, thank you so much for joining us to tell us all about it.
1: Miranda, thank you so much for that rousing introduction and also your interest in my book. I'm happy to be here to talk about it.
2: I'm glad to have you. Could we start please with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this?
1: Of course, sure. So um, so again, my name is Damon Scott. I'm a, a geography professor at Miami University of Ohio. Um, this is my first book, first full-length monograph. Um, and I think the best way to kind of introduce the book is to say a little bit about how it did come about as a my very first foray into kind of the archives. Um, I see myself as an urban historical geographer who, who looks at questions of the post-war city and its impact on the social geographies of people, particularly queer people. Um, and so as a, as a graduate student, um, I spent a summer as a, a summer intern um, at the uh, GLBT Historical Society of Northern California, which is essentially a community-based archive in the city of San Francisco uh, that has its roots back in the late 1970s uh, among a bunch of people who were sort of living through a changing city um, and collecting um, oral histories, collecting organizational records, collecting publications into this rich archive of material about the queer history of uh, San Francisco and the kind of Bay Area region. Uh, When I arrived um, as a a graduate student uh, in geography, um, they took very uh, an interest in my background in, in cartography and ability to use mapping software to, to generate uh, you know, spatial representations of, of places. And so they, they connected me with one of the archivists who was the keeper of this amazing list. Um, people refer to it as the, as the sites list or the queer sites list. Um, the person um, that I met with um, had inherited it, I think, from several other people who had worked on it. And essentially, it was a, a set of, um, of Word files uh, that all had tables in them that included uh, names of places, addresses, um, and in some cases, information about dates in which particular sites in the city had some connection to kind of gay history or the gay past. Uh, it included bars, uh, bathhouses, restaurants, sites where there were raids, a whole bunch of different things. And so they asked me to create a map, and I I created a map, uh, a large poster size map uh, of this database, Um, again, essentially just addresses and names of places. Um, And in the process of creating that map, um, I I kept running into these problems, these mapping errors. The software package that I was using kept saying, um, unable to map these places, Um, and I looked more closely, and it was a handful of places Um, on the San Francisco waterfront at the end of Market Street in the area around the Ferry Building. um, uh, Was anyone able to map them? But I quickly realized, um, are these places, there was maybe 10, 15 places or so, or at least names um, and addresses, is that those addresses no longer existed because I was using a modern contemporary map um, and I was trying to map them in an area that had been, uh, a a 28-block area that had been, torn down and rebuilt. Um, and so not only are the bu- where the buildings' gone, but, but the, the street grid has completely been reconfigured. And so this book um, really is the story um, of those places um, that I was unable to map in that early foray. Um, and in the process of writing the book, it took me into a lot of different directions and a lot of different archives. Most importantly, it took me into the archives of the city to try and understand a little bit more about the urban planning history and urban development history of San Francisco in the post-war period, uh, because many of these places dated uh, to uh, the, the 19, late 1940s, um, and they all uh, disappeared in the, in the early 1960s. So it's really the results of my quest to understand the origins, history, and fate of a handful of bars on the San Francisco waterfront um that flourished uh in the the two decades after world war ii
2: Hmm. thank you for that wonderful introduction to the project and the book and how it so helpfully lays out where we're looking and when we're looking um Mm -hmm. can we therefore talk about what we're looking at um what do you mean by queer land use and how do you use this role in identifying the kind of what at the focus of the book
1: great question. yeah, uh, queer land use is a term that I that I came to, I I began using myself. It just kind of emerged uh, from from trying to understand the histories of these places and what they were, what they what they how they originated. It's a term that I coined. It's not one that I found elsewhere, um, and I it was a helpful term. It has been a helpful term because what I was really looking at um, are patterns of commercial activity that accommodated non normative sexual desires during this period. Uh, places that provoked anxieties about urban decline, places that undermined urban land values, um, and places that fueled post-war urban redevelopment projects. I like the word queer land uses better uh, than maybe more more familiar terms, uh, like gay bar. The kinds of places I'm talking about are were largely drinking establishments, but it also include hotels and um, and lunch counters and uh, and different kinds of drinking establishments. Um, I like uh, queer land uses better than gay bar because gay bar to me signifies a more kind of sexual identitarian sort of politics that emerges um, uh, in in the 1970s and a little sort of later period. It's not that gay bar was not a term that was used earlier. The earliest occurrence I've seen of the use of the term gay bar in the city of San Francisco was in the mid 1950s, uh, but queer land uses Um, signifies a much more inclusive uh, way of thinking about sexual and gender non-normative populations and and publics that inhabited these places. And also, again, these places were not just bars. The final thing I'll also say is by intentionally focusing on and using the word land uses, I really wanna center the narrative um, in the book on questions of land ownership, land tenure, property leases, and in particular, the role of state actors operating under a very particular vision for managing post-war urban development in normalizing and stigmatizing different kinds of commercial activities. Um, It's really um, about uh, the ways in which people and city leaders, particularly people using um, the powers and tools of of urban planning and urban design uh, that are trying to kind of uh, make changes in this area, Um, And they're talking about it um, in in often stigmatizing ways. Um, The book focuses on how marginalized sexual subjects created, adapted, defended, um, and reconstituted queer land uses uh, in the face of large-scale urban uh, landscape destruction. And I'll just say one more thing about land uses. Um, This area, again, roughly a 28-block area um, at at the foot of Market Street near the Ferry Building. um, uh, Historically, was a place uh, where there was a jumble of different, what I would re- refer to as sort of sailor town land uses. Um, there were hotels, uh, cigar stores, clothing shops, uh, coffee shops, uh, 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 naval store stores, locker clubs, places that people who were tied into the maritime economy, either because they were dock workers loading and unloading boats, ships, or because they were um, sailors who were passing in and out of the port, uh, this was the place that they uh, they stayed in town often uh, in between uh, work assignments. So the mix of kinds of buildings there that were really dedicated to this sort of subset had a kind of occupational kind of maritime um, economy that the that, that sort of underlies the, the earlier use of those areas.
2: Hmm. No, that, that's very helpful. Thank you um, for helping us understand kind of what we're looking at, who we're talking about, um, both in terms of minority sexuality, as well as the jobs that we're looking at, So that does very much come into play as the time goes on. But I do want to add one more thing in, or really ask you to add one more thing of to course, this Of course, sure, yes, mix. please. Um, to what extent was this waterfront with people uh, on land, at sea, going back and forth between them, um, a variety of sexualities, it's at, you know, different kinds of businesses. To what extent are we also talking about a racially integrated place or a racially mixed place? Um, and, and what were some of the drivers of that?
1: Really, really great question. I'm really glad that you, you picked up on that, that, that thread. Um, to kind of understand a little bit more about the who of sort of who inhabited and passed through um, the waterfront uh, during the 1930s into the 40s and the 50s and 60s, it's important to know a little bit about kind of the history of, of maritime labor unions and union organizing. Um, and I really have to give credit to um, the amazing trailblazing work of Alan Barrow Bay. Um, this book, Coming Out Under Fire, talks about um, experience of and gays and lesbians during World War II, um, and his subsequent research has focused particularly on a group called the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, uh, which was a really important labor union um, on the on the uh, operating on the Pacific Coast at a Pacific ports. Um, and in his work, uh, what he has sort of shown um, is that as early as the 1930s, um, San Francisco was a center of a very particular kind of like a cross-racial, cross-sexual kind of social solidarity uh, within the labor union movement. Uh, and it occurred in part because of the, the dramatic um, uh, advances that came in the wake of a, of a major strike in 1934 that shut down the Western ports and resulted in maritime workers having much more leverage over the conditions of their labor. And in particular, what it meant is that maritime laborers were able to organize and negotiate labor contracts over time, um, um, and also have the ability to set up their own hiring halls. These were places where they would um, they would keep a roster of active members of the union. They would sh- they would sort of rotate through um, job assignments, um, and they would detail or they would send. Uh, work gangs or labor crews to the waterfront to staff these contracts that they had negotiated periodically with with shippers. And so these uh, this this sort of system of contract labor with l- labor union halls also had within it. I'm, I'm going to get into your question about kind of racial the racial kind of geographies of this system. Um, maritime labor, maritime trades uh, were, were were segregated uh, in a kind of racial hierarchy Uh, And in particular, um, the the waterfront workers who were part of the merchant marines, when I say merchant marines, I'm referring to the people who were working in the civilian naval, non-military people, but working aboard ships at sea. um, Within this labor force, um, you had an important subset of them that were part of the stewards department of ships. And what that means is, uh, particularly on passenger liners, Uh, These are the staff aboard ships that would tend to the needs of the passengers. So the stewards department had um, the cooks, uh, the janitors, uh, the cabin attendants, the pastry chefs, the bartenders, the porters, a whole mix of the kinds of people we often think about as being associated with a hotel on land. this was a kind of fraction of the labor force on these um, uh, passenger ships um, in the 1930s and 40s. and they tended to be uh, disproportionately places that, that had a higher number of, of people of Af- African-American. There were more black workers in uh, working aboard this kind of labor in ships, uh, as well as um, what were referred to at the time as queens, gay men um, who worked as waiters or other stewards aboard ships. And so in the 1930s, after these uh, labor unions were able to kind of create these hiring halls, uh, you see you see a growing uh, growing power and leverage um, and, um, and and social soft, social solidarity among people in this kind of like maritime trade group. Um, and they often kind of fought against efforts to undermine the solidarity of the group uh, that was that came from um, either kind of racial divisions or homophobic divisions or ideological divisions. Um, and again, I'm drawing a lot on Alan Barabay here to kind of draw this out. Um, they were very proud. This labor union, the, the the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, were very proud about fighting against what they referred to as um, uh, red baiting, uh, queen baiting, um, uh, 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 and race baiting uh, of their their of their of their, um, of their, uh, their their unions. Right. And so, what happens during World War II? So this is already established in the 1930s. So what happens during World War II? is there's a major labor shortage on West Coast ports, and particularly in San Francisco, which is really the center of operations for dispatching troops to the Pacific uh, theater at war. So large numbers of service members coming through, but also a lot of ancillary wartime um, uh, industries involved, uh, and not a lot of workers. And so during this time period the 1940s, these labor unions on the waterfront maritime unions of the civilian Navy Uh, became much more racially integrated um, because of the demand for labor and also certain labor unions having a history of being a little bit more uh, open to kind of racial integration. Um, And so by the end of World War II, it's estimated that about 20 percent of the longshoremen uh, in San Francisco, the people loading and unloading ships were African-American. And it's estimated that in the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, which had a membership of about 19,000 people, um, about half of them were African-American by the end of the war. And so I can see this from sort of, you know, statistical demographic sorts of bits and pieces I could find. Um, but also you could even see it in the, the land uses of the kinds of places and who were, were occupying them on the San Francisco waterfront. I saw examples in census records of, of several different um, residential hotels that were deli- that were part of this maritime, sailor town economy of, you know, uh, sailors staying in, in town, on you know, in between st- st- sets at sea, uh, that was predominantly African American. We saw uh, also a kind of a, a jazz nightlife culture uh, in some of the bars on the San Francisco waterfront, um, as well as from oral histories, some recollections of cross-racial sexual tourism um, and same-sex desire um, um, in the basements, um, in cruising zones, um, and in the YWCA. Uh, on the San Francisco waterfront.
2: Hmm. That paints a very clear picture of sort of where we're at um, at the moment of ending World War II and also, helpfully, how we got there. Um, So thank you for that answer. If we then move to the post-war word really in the title, (laughs) there's a pretty big change that happens um, to this community that you've just described and sort of set up for us. with the merchant marines and the naval forces, that to my reading, when I read that part in the book, I was like, "Wow!" And there's still a waterfront after this. Hmm. So, can you walk us through kind of what is this big change and what does it do to the queer waterfront?
1: Yeah, well, I, I uh, great question, and what I would what I would say is, um, I think things really get um, complicated. Um, and uh, interesting in the late 1940s, um, and it's not—it's not really the—it's not World War II and the ending of World War II. It's—it's it's the onset of the Cold War. It's, it's this rising tensions, uh, you know, in the wake of uh, the communist revolution in China. Um, there's an enormous sense of anxiety and concern about subversives entering into the country and undermining American, you know, political life and cultural life and power structures and so forth, as we all sort of know about during the Cold War, but the way it kind of played on the West Coast, um, I think deserves more attention. And I, and I've tried to draw some of this out in, in the book, um, and that is that there was a great deal of concern about these port facilities and, and the potential for the inter, in, infiltration and port facilities, um, of, of this sort of, you know, spreading communist, you know, uh, you know, threat, uh, throughout the Pacific, um, and and what begins to happen, uh, and it happens first under the Truman administration, and then again under the Eisenhower administration, um, is a program to systematically screen subjective subversives and homosexuals out of the merchant marines, um, and 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 other scholars have written very beautifully about. Um, the ways in which um, during the Cold War, homosexuals were targeted in all kinds of different sort of government, bureaucratic, and and military positions. Uh, A lot of that focuses on, um, in part, what happens um, at the federal level in Washington, D.C., but it also is happening systematically um, on West Coast ports in particular because West Coast ports and West Coast labor unions had a longer history of being more ideologically aligned with leftist causes, had been more organized, uh, and or also on uh, on the western flank uh, of the country facing uh, the Pacific Rim, right. And so, uh, one of the first places a systematic program was set up to issue papers to port workers um, and then check the the identities of those workers against records. Uh, uh, criminal records uh happened on the San Francisco uh waterfront. Um, and the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union was one of the, the, the sort of primary targeted um most leftist sort of uh labor unions uh that saw the beginnings of this intensive sort of scrutiny, right? Well, similar things are also happening um in the uh the Longshoremen's Union. Um, And then in a non-civilian context, it's also happening uh, in a military context through sort of the the armed forces as well. And so this process of screening um, um, really systematically kind of unrolls uh, in the early 50s uh, through a a series of, uh, again, these administrative state sort of control over the labor unions um, leads to um, a a population of, of displaced maritime workers who are no longer given port access uh, to jobs on on the waterfront, yet they are still hanging out. They're still going to, they're seeking out opportunity um, in these informal waterfront hangouts, these hiring halls, the bars, the taverns, the cocktail lounges, um, uh, and the hiring halls on the waterfront. And San Francisco becomes a really important place uh, where a lot of this activity is happening. I think in part because there's this idea that that San Francisco is, is is a place um that at least has a longer history of this um you know success in um in advocating for and 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 having sort of social solidarity among waterfront uh, labor union workers, right? And so um so that begins happening um and and you start seeing then um in the context of lavender scare, you start seeing um local officials and state officials identifying and calling out and targeting bars. Um, And one of the bars that was targeted early on uh, was the Black Cat Cafe. The Black Cat Cafe is a place um, that many people have written about uh, uh, as a place that uh, the owner of that bar successfully fought um, a long legal battle that went all the way up to the California Supreme Court. Uh, And one of the key issues in that battle was over whether or not he, as a straight man, uh, owner of this bar had um, the legal right to serve homosexuals. So it was, a, uh, and he won that case and it was seen as a kind of um, civil rights victory, uh, early civil rights victory uh, uh, for gay, lesbian people, but it actually emerged in one of these bars that was tied very much uh, into the kind of West west Coast kind of maritime waterfront labor economy, although it wasn't directly on the, on the waterfront. And I'll just add a couple other things. Um, you start also seeing in, the, in the, about 54, 55, Uh, Places like the Sea Cow Cafe, uh, which was a bar that uh, was actually the very center of this earlier labor fight that I mentioned in in 1934 uh, that kind of established, um, you know, the greater leverage for maritime unions by 1954 is is a place uh, where where transgender and queer people are sort of hanging out and it's being raided by uh, the police uh, and also a place that gets a shout out as a mention um, in the Mattachine Society, homophile organization, had a, a conference, early conference in the city of San Francisco, and offered uh, the conference goers a kind of short, you know, sort of guide, guide to the city of places to go, and suggested that they go to the Sea Cow Cafe uh, uh, for beer and semen, uh, S E A M A N, right? Um, uh, and it is now uh, becoming to look like and take on the character uh, of a of a gay bar, right? Um, or at least in the parlance of the time period what was referred to as, by the police and in the press, as a quote, hang out for homosexuals.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: All right. Well, you, you've mentioned the police. So I think this is a good time to yes. bring them into the conversation now that we've got an idea of what's happening and developing on this waterfront. And as you just mentioned, right, gaining, it's it's known, it's gaining some amount of notoriety. So how do the police, how does the city government react to all this?
1: Yes. Well. Um, You know, I I guess when I started this project, you know, and from some reading histories of the city and, you know, kind of like kind of popular cultural kind of understandings of like, you know, the history of this terrible period of bar raids in the city that, uh, you know, uh, left, you know, queer people in the city, you know, terrorized and afraid to kind of go out or and um, um, which I I think some of that that a lot of that did happen. when i look at the sources and you look at kind of the commercial histories of some of these bars what you realize is you see a lot more persistence than actually closure so the places that i was seeing they lasted a really long time but if you only look at um the periodic sensationalized police you know stories um in in the newspapers stories of public crackdowns or street sweeps or roundups. Um, and those definitely did happen and they did terrorize people. And that was, that was, that was a really dark, terrible period. What you also begin to learn and you sort of see is that those places very quickly and quietly sort of reopened. Um, and, and some of them, there is, there's evidence of actually the direct role or participation of police in um, in in allowing them or facilitating them to sort of do operate um, uh, and remain open, and so for example, um, uh, a place called Jack's Waterfront Cafe, Jack's Waterfront Hangout, um, or Hideaway had different names. Uh, for a period that it was in operation, was actually owned by the Port of of San Francisco, and then owned and then sold to uh, the California Department of um, of Highways. Uh, and those state entities operated as essentially the landlord for what was a kind of known gay bar, right? These places advertised relatively openly um, in, in, in coded language, but it was kind of a little bit clear what was going on um, in, in, in nightlife columns of the city, uh, in uh, in, uh, in regular newspapers. Um, but the most damaged sort of uh, evidence of the kind of awareness and participation of, of police in the... In the, in the operation of some of these bars uh, is the Gayola scandal that, that kind of broke through into the headlines um, in 1916. What it exposed is a whole system of police graft um, in which police officers uh, you know, were, 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 and also state liquor agents were showing up on a monthly basis, basis to get a cut of the, of the proceeds, of uh, the bar tabs, and also maybe picking up a couple bottles of liquor, sometimes bringing their wives or girlfriends. Um, it was it was essentially kind of a holder. What I, how I sort of think about it is, is it's a little bit of a holdover of a of a kind of like a prohibition sort of world of speakeasies where places are kind of hidden and concealed from sort of plain view, but not really to sort of completely hide them or make them invisible, but instead to allow law enforcement plausible deniability when they're exposed that they didn't know anything that was going on. They were una- una- unaware those things were happening. And so I did see bits and pieces of examples of of the role of police in actually facilitating the opening and the closure and the movement of some of these places, and what what that added up to me uh, was to sort of see um, that by the by the late nineteen fifties, the period of sort of large like of of like sensationalized bar raids and bar crackdowns, you know, splashed over the news It tended to kind of come around around political moments and political decision times, um, had turned into actually a, a process of kind of, tr- like trying to sort of manage or steer queer nightlife away from certain areas and towards other areas. So I think there's a spatiality to this um, that you can kind of look at if you look at opening and closing and, and some of the decisions that were made um, uh, that come out of this Gaiola case and sort of why where, where there was permissiveness and where there wasn't permissiveness. Um, and you see a lot more crackdowns on, for example, a neighborhood called uh, North Beach, uh, more crackdowns um, in the Tenderloin, and a more kind of laissez-faire attitude about the waterfront. And and what I attribute this to um, is that by the, by the mid-1950s, um, city leaders, elected officials, and also business leaders working together had already kind of settled on this idea that the San Francisco waterfront, at least the area around the Embarcadero, was going to be redeveloped. Uh, it was it was It was going to be transformed um, into a totally different physical landscape that took advantage of the um, the two new major bridges that spanned uh, the bay that were open. Uh, at the beginnings, just before the start of World War II, but never really had the full effect of transforming commuting patterns and land use patterns. Those become very much on the mind of of, of city leaders in the post World War II period about how to how to shift away from a kind of maritime waterfront uh, ferry building oriented world to one that was devoted to the automobile, and also to kind of reconfigure and rethink about um, um, the city as being really the the administrative and financial core. Of an expanding Bay Area metropolitan region, in which the kind of maritime land uses and the maritime kind of infrastructure would be relocated out of the out of San Francisco and largely shift to either the periphery of, of San Francisco or across the bay to Oakland. So those those sort of longer range sort of plans were already kind of being talked about off of behind closed doors, um, and this is the moment also in which. Um, Essentially, they had kind of given up on the waterfront and, and and treated it as a kind of managed vice district and steered queer nightlife uh, to Lower Market Street for a brief period uh, during which it kind of grew um, and, uh, and and flourished in in uh, in pretty amazing ways.
2: I, in some ways, I want to like not stomp on the flourishing in amazing ways, but we do have to kind of <laughs> stick with the actual yes. history, unfortunately. Yes. So staying on the i don't know if we want to call them evil corrupt politicians that might be going too far the other direction but this whole plan for the redevelopment behind closed door side of things seems to come out in the open very much around this word blighted yes when and why does that word really become in a lot of ways it seems a weapon against this flourishing community Well, tell us about kind of this word and the role it plays
1: I, I will do that, but let me just circle back to flourishing, and I'll just say um, uh, there are bits and pieces and glimpses of this flourishing queer nightlife world on the waterfront that I was able to to sort of gather and and, and consolidate and kind of uh, interpret from this amazing archive of oral histories that were collected not by myself but by by people who were connected to the uh, Gay Lesbian Historical Society. Um, these are interviews of people, many of them World War II veterans, uh, or people who transited the city um, during this time period, um, who who weren't really being interviewed about the waterfront itself, but were just being interviewed about their experience of the city and what it was like. And often you see these bits and pieces and references to places on the waterfront, you can stitch them together and kind of get a sense of the, the flourishing of it. But to your question about the blightedness, the, the actually the connection between flourishing and blightedness. Um, so blight is a very, you know, specific word that has a lot of uh, a power. Um, blight is a is a word that is used um, in in a kind of planning context uh, with legal implications um, to declare an area blighted. Um, this was a kind of a administrative procedure that came about um, uh, as a result of of urban redevelopment laws. Uh, one of the first urban redevelopment laws. Uh, In the country, uh, it was the California Community community Redevelopment Law in 1945, and one of the justifications behind that law was to actually redevelop the San Francisco waterfront. So very early on, one of the main projects, the state legislature in Sacramento, wanted, among other things, was to kind of redevelop the San Francisco waterfront. At that moment, they were focusing on um, the kind of uh, the produce market area, the area where uh, the warehouse district that where fruits and vegetables were brought into the the city to be um, distributed um, by retailers, Um, And so in that law and other laws, blighted, uh, to declare something blighted means to to create a map uh, and draw a line around a certain area of the city and and designate it blighted, which opens up the possibility of utilizing um, state power of eminent domain to acquire land uh, to put it to a higher economic purpose. So the way they would operationalize or kind of calculate what blight was is an area, a block, a neighborhood, a section of the city that is taking more tax revenues than it's giving back. It's a net drag on the city's coffers. Um, it's a kind of economic kind of you know formula in there to kind of figure that out. Um, once those areas are declared blighted, what that means is they are candidates um, for um, Applying for large amounts of public funds to acquire land, buildings uh, from from owners at fair market price for public use, um, tear those buildings down and rebuild them, um, and so there's state power and also money that goes along with declaring things blighted. It's a, it's a way of of condemning something, but it's condemnation that has the power. Uh, full power of governmental authority to kind of uh, intervene in the urban land uh, market, um, and 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 completely tear down and rebuild, um, you know, sections of the city, and so the the implication was for the San Francisco waterfront, uh, and there were there were several, you know, the beginnings of rumblings of plans to uh, redevelop the waterfront and, and describing it in a kind of like pejorative ways, that it was obsolete, that it was dilapidated, that it was dirty, that it was dangerous, Um, there was a site of sexual predation and gender, you know, abnormality. These are all kinds of like tropes that were used to kind of reshape the imaginary of what was going on in the waterfront to sort of promote and justify and rationalize declaring the air blighted. Um, Those all took time to kind of work their way through. Um, but the air was officially blighted, uh, declared blighted in 1954-55, and in that blight declaration, uh, city leaders drew uh, a line around 28 blocks, uh, which really pretty much corresponded to most all of the sort of maritime land use quarter of the city, which was the produce market, but other other things as well, like these sort of hotel, you know, you know, work, you know, uh, maritime seamen's hotels, and other sorts of things. Um, but it took about 10 years or so, a little bit less than 10 years, to actually act on those plans. Um, and so once it's supplied, it, it actually, it discourages any further investment. Um, it, it, it creates this sort of holding pattern of these places where there's this intense desire of the state uh, to kind of acquire this land. But there's also this interest um, in downgrading its value so that you can actually purchase it to, for a lower and lower uh, value. So there was a, there was a sort of logic here in steering queer nightlife to the waterfront as a way to further uh, you know depress the sort of you know land values and the and and the cost of acquiring this land to rebuild it. And I think it was in that logic um, that this sort of like moment of allowing things to happen there on you know unabated and un. Uh, relatively unpoliced, but you know, subject to s- extortion by law enforcement, creates this sort of um, context in which uh, there is a lot of queer- queerness happening on the waterfront. Um, I mean, the descriptions of of the of the San Francisco YMCA in the nineteen fifties from multiple people who visited there and recalled them in oral histories are lurid. I mean, they, they just they refer to the place as like an open brothel. Uh, that the people who even live in the city would sort of check in, uh, f- you know, for the weekend because they knew that, um, you know, the shower stalls were kind of a cruising zone that people had, you know, the- it was just a kind of open sexuality uh, in the halls of this YWCA um, because it was a kind of kind of a anything goes kind of zone.
2: Which is fascinating, um, thinking about kind of what the word blighted means legally economically and also sort of in the popular imagination um is there anything further you'd like to tell us about queer land uses after kind of this word has been deployed but as you said as it's sort of trickling down and hasn't actually kind of kicked people out yet
1: yeah so um so in this period i just referred to as a period of flourishing and um uh, yeah, I would say that period is sort of like the late fifties to early sixties. Um, uh, you get interesting characters, uh, I shouldn't say character, interesting, interesting, the, the kind of coalescing of a kind of a queer bar culture, um uh, along the waterfront. Uh, and, and one of the interesting places that, uh, so, to bring, bring it to the book, um, there's a couple chapters um, that focus on, on specific locations and how those sort of changed over time. And, and they're kind of meant to kind of go together to sort of see uh, how things were under this, this older regime of police controlled, uh, managed, regulated, sort of speakeasy like underground like vice. Uh, and that was a place called the Ensign Cafe, uh, it had some other names as well. On one hand, it goes back all the way to World War II, at least, if not older. Um, and then across the street, there was another place. Um, the address was 90 Market, but the places that were in 90 Market, the names of places changed. There were multiple places in the same space. It was a really large space that was a a cocktail lounge with multiple bars in it. It had a restaurant in the front. Um, from the outside, it seemed relatively unassuming one door, door or two, but once you entered, you, you could go all the way back to the building and it, it really occupied much of the lot of that area. Um, that building, um, 90 Market Street, was the site, um, and this really, really blew my mind. And this actually kind of came out of of trying to understand a little bit more about the history of these places. There's a, there's a very close connection between 90 Market and the Black Cat. And that connection is in... Um, in the op, in the sort of actions and the operations and the in the the life of a really important and treasured figure in in San Francisco um Jose Sarria who was a uh who's who's known pretty well as somebody who was a singing waiter uh, at the Black Cat who went from you know singing uh kind of campy sort of songs to the some uh, some crowds to so then uh offering a kind of regular Sunday um you know, drag performance in which he lampooned the police uh, and, uh, and drew big crowds and always ended his his performances with a kind of an appeal to the people in the crowd to kind of stay together, to hang together, to, you know, together, you know, uh, you know sing together. If, we, if we're if we divided, they'll catch us one by one was something some that effect? what he said. Well, people in San Francisco know a lot about this figure and he's even has a national sort of profile in terms of the importance. Um, and it's largely linked um, to his, not just his role at the Black Cat and kind of um, from the stage, uh, you know, uh, calling on people to kind of come together and 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 form a community and act together, but also for his uh, being the very first person to run as an openly gay person for a position in public office. He ran for the Board of Supervisors uh, in in San Francisco. Uh, It didn't win, but it was a demonstration of the political power and the size of the gay community in the city. Um, And he has a much more interesting and even more compelling kind of life beyond that, um, in which he was very much involved in the creation of of, um, a whole organization that organized uh, queer bar performers into a kind of pantheon of of aristocratic uh, you know realms and regions uh, uh, in the international court system uh, of drag that is international and still exists today. Anyway, so that's a lot about Jose Seria. but what was not was not clear before I wrote this book and what the book does show is that Jose Seria was really instrumental in actually expanding beyond the black cat to setting up operations in 90 market which was a much larger venue, which had a showroom and a stage. I got receipts in his in his art, personal archives of buying lumber and nails and things to kind of, you know, kind of re, reconfigure the interior of that space to make it his big sort of show palace. Um, you know, he kind of essentially was the manager and ran the place. But he also set up in the front of it a lunch counter. Um, and and he was aspiring, you know, uh, a business person, not just a performer, but also a business person. Um, and. And in the, in his his lunch counter, and I think there's a really interesting parallels to other kind of civil rights sort of histories of lunch counters and the role of kind of mobilizing people to kind of push back against you know state violence. Um, so he's running this lunch counter in you know 1960 or so uh, in 90 Market in the center of sort of, you know center of this sort of urban redevelopment area, um, and and across the street is the is the is Southern Pacific, which is a big, big, you know, transit, you know, shipping company. Um, And and during lunch hour, a lot of its employees are flooding out into the street and coming across the street and having lunch. And a lot of them are queer. And so people in these reminiscences of, of, of San Francisco during this time period talk about the Southern Pacific building, uh, which had a giant sign on the roof uh, with its initials SP. Uh, It had, it had the reputation. It had this sort of nickname as the Swish palace because a large number of queer, like clerical staff, that would sort of flood across the street, uh, you know, at the end of the day, but also during lunch, they would come across to Jose Saria's place, um, and the executives at the at the, at the Southern Pacific um, tried to shut him down. They tried to put him out of business. They threatened um, his customers that if they go, they continue to go there, that they would be fired. Um, and Jose Jose Saria sort of talks about in an oral history that was the impetus for him to actually get organized to kind of mobilize people um, to show political power and strength at the voting box. So I think it's powerful and interesting that right here in the middle of this urban redevelopment area, this sort of entrepreneurial kind of queer drag person who's the son of immigrants from Latin America um, is, is, is seizing on and taking his sort of political power uh, as a person who can rally people that his customers and people in this kind of bar culture on the waterfront, uh, to assert their rights, um, in the community. And, um, and he also gets involved not only in running for, for supervisor, but he also gets involved in starting, uh, one of the very first newspapers, uh, gay newspapers in the city called, uh, the citizen, uh, the, the league of citizens, educations, the news or the citizens news and names changed a couple of times, um. It begins publication in 1960, and it becomes publication as actually the the organ to promote his candidacy, Uh, but it also becomes the first, I think the first I've seen, first example of a gay newspaper, regularly published, serialized publication uh, that begins offering advertisements. So you start seeing the very first advertisements of gay bars um, listing kind of the entertainments and the, uh, you know, a roster of. Uh, fundraisers and all all kinds of other things. And what they're actually doing is not only raising political awareness and, and getting people to kind of register to vote um, and show the political power, but they're also organizing commercial interests um, and, and, and raising money for a legal defense fund to protect the right of business owners that begin um, in this period um, uh, also to be f- facing um, eviction orders. Letters from the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency that they need to kind of vacate the premises, um, leases that are suspended um, and a heightened period of more policing and also vigilante violence of of groups of thugs coming in and, um, and and beating people up. And it was a really dark sort of period. And this is sort of the 1962, 63 at the moment in which land acquisition is finally happening. Um, and there's this in, immense sort of power that comes down on trying to kind of evict through whatever means possible this and dislodge this kind of queer uh, world on the waterfront. And this is a moment of political organizing, of social consciousness. Um, uh, it's a moment of the city becoming aroused.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, there's there's two threads there I really want to ask you to tell us a bit more about. So. Uh, I think I'm going to ask about the sort of political organizing side first, and then we'll talk a bit okay. more about the evictions and the police. Um, what you're describing with the newspaper, with the organizing, with the illusions, you know, the lunch counter uh, illusions mm-hmm. that we see with the civil rights movement, this really is sort of community political organizing. Um but maybe San Francisco's Waterfront Queer Bars is not necessarily where we think of the origins of the gay rights movement coming from. Why do you think it's important to maybe change that picture and center that origin here?
1: So it's really a great question. So really inspired in my work by Alan Barabay, Alan Barabay have already mentioned, but also John D'Amelio's work on on gay communities and gay organizing. Um, and so John D'Amelio sort of talks about this really important sort of moment in which the homophile organizations and the gay bar cultures kind of come together and unify. And that is sort of what he identifies as sort of moment of kind of like the emergence of a kind of gay community kind of logic or a gay community sort of framing of political rights and fight for for, for minority rights. Um, I, I hope I haven't oversimplified his arguments, but. But that always sort of struck me, kind of went, you know, kind of uh, that that totally makes sense to me. But I but but I wanted to know more about the sort of the gay bar part of that uh, and the pre sort of homophile organizational sort of story of that. And I think it happens in 90 Market Street. I think it happens. Um, there's a moment in which at 90 Market Street, Jose Saria invites the police representative of the district attorney's office a homophile organization representatives as well. And he wants to have a conversation in 90 Market Street at this bar. It was called the talk of the town at the time. He just become sort of a part of it. Um, a conversation about kind of um, um, lessening the kind of raids and arrests and, and the harassment of gay bar patrons uh, and kind of work, you know, kind of working with police to kind of, you know, uh, get them to sort of back down on, 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 on this sort of crackdown. Um, and it's kind of at this moment that, that the homophile organizations, which were really powerful and really important um, in the through the mid 1950s, to early 1960s. Um, I'm talking about the Mattachine society and the daughters of Belitis, uh, as well as some others nationally are really important in the United States give San Francisco, its national significance and importance as a kind of gay Mecca and a kind of early, Really important place in which queer people begin to kind of make a, a assertive form assertive rights uh, for for civil rights. Uh, but the managing Society and of Belitis, they were always very kind of cognizant of not um, talking about specific places. Um, they never mentioned bars. They never mentioned restaurants. They never mentioned the sort of lived experience world queer worlds in which uh, their members sort of circulated in. Um, in part, I think it was to kind of, uh, you know, pursue a kind of politics of legitimation and and normalizing, you know, queer gay citizenship. But it was also about protecting those places from being targeted or broken down, on right? And so this all kind of breaks down on the waterfront when, 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 when these queer land uses become the sites in which, um, a new politics about protecting, defending, preserving, um, actively promoting, um, reconstituting in new places when places are shut down. where we're preserving the kind of the, the gathering space and a place for these queer drinking publics to kind of reconstitute themselves. It really leads to kind of a different kind of politics. It's a kind of it is a community based, emergent bar culture kind of politics. Um, that I think is an important kind of like pivot point um in in the logics of 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 you know activists during this time period who are pursuing, you know, um rights for you know monarchized gender and sexualized subjects, right? Um so I think that that's really important. I think the other thing that's really important is 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 this sort of queer history of San Francisco has you know, the sort of historiography of it has really emphasized a lot the really important, the importance of, of people like Harvey Milk. Um, It's centered around a kind of narrative about the neighborhood, the creation of a gay neighborhood, you know, a commercial zone where there's a whole bunch of different kinds of, what I would say, queer land uses that are, you know, bars, bookstores, you know, all kinds of clothing stores and so forth. Um, I I think what, what, what my book sort of shows is, is something about what, what was the pre-gayborhood sort of world of San Francisco? What did it look like? It wasn't organized in a kind of neighborhood sort of sense, but it did have a sense of social solidarity. It had a kind of investment in places, but those places look quite different. And I would say that the kind of the catalyst, the catalyst for people to kind of, you know, showing up, showing out um, and and pushing back against, um, you know, several decades of harassment is, is the loss of physical spaces. It's about the kind of like the, the loss of the city underneath them, which which does happen. That whole area does get torn down and and, and redeveloped, but but it also requires an enormous amount of 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 energy and effort, and organizational power and 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 energies and solidarity to then begin reconstituting um, you know their kind of social spaces in other areas. And and now they've got, you know. A, a publishing mechanism. They've got a newspaper. They've got all kinds of new organizations that kind of flourish a- a- after this moment of the the shutting down of the, the queer waterfront and the proliferation of of more queer slash gay land uses that kind of you know a con- a, a, that 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 rise to the level of actually something that's visible as a as a neighborhood.
2: Mm. Really interesting to see those threads um, carry forward. I did promise, however, that we were going to, I was going to ask you a bit more about the police, because I thought this was a really interesting aspect of the book, Um, because in a lot of ways, the image we've painted so far is, of course, true um, of the kind of, okay, everyone's getting eviction notices. All right, there's really an increase here in pressure, in violence and intimidation. But you also talk about in the book that it's not exactly, exactly the same for every queer, um, place, that there's some differences in kind of how law enforcement goes about this in terms of timing, in terms of levels of intimidation. So can you take us through that nuance?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks for, for drawing that out. Yeah. Um, I guess I would go back to what I, the contrast between 90 Market Street um, and, and the Ensign Cafe. So the Ensign Cafe was the corner of Market uh, and, and the Embarcadero, It's today it's actually a, a park, um, uh, which for a while was referred to as Justin Herman Plaza and Park, uh, named after the head of the redevelopment agency that was largely responsible for spearheading and you know making this redevelopment project, uh, moving it forward. Um, if you just look at sort of, again, back to the kind of earlier thing, I was trying to understand at the beginning of this process, of this whole research project is to kind of the opening and closing day. it's a very simple kind of question like when did the when did this gay bar open right and so that opens a lot of questions of, well what is a gay bar and when does it is it is it are all got gay bars the same how do you define a gay bar and what right. does the gay bar close well on the second part of that when did these two gay bars close quote-unquote gay bars or hangouts for homosexuals the ensign club is is one of the very last buildings in all of this 28-block area that is acquired by the Redevelopment Agency and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and torn down. The person who opened the Ensign Club back in the, I think, 1930s uh, is the last person, he, he is in continuous operation of this place, that over a year, for decades, um, has hosted not only kind of, you know, basically a kind of a, a a sex club in a sense in the basement uh but but uh, a gay bar a place where trans people hung out advertised in in sort of national trans magazines um periodically closed but always opened again he was a, he was a longtime survivor he was the kind of person who was not a gay person himself as far as i know uh but somebody who was very much operating under this system of police craft um never made cases. It was never a place that was politicized in quite the same way. It didn't have a kind of a queer, um, a kind of constituency or kind of bar culture that really organized or pushed against and, and acquired and pushed for political power. Um, and it's 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 telling that it becomes the one that is is left to stay to the very end, right? The last one that closes. In contrast, across the street, 90 Market Street, the place I sort of mentioning, associated with Jose Saria, um, its last uh, owner operator was uh, was was a guy named Saul Stoneman, who was the same guy who ran the Black Cat. He was the same guy who, all the way to the Supreme Court, defended the right his right to serve to, to homosexual patrons. Um, he is the only one of one of one of the only businesses in the entire 28 block area of redevelop- Redevelopment Agency that that actually went bankrupt. As a result of the eviction and the dispossession of all of his all of his his um, properties in that in that area, and it essentially ruined his career. It ruined his 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 business uh, his bar business. So I guess to your question about policing, there there is a very different logic to it, and it, it has to do with um, a subset of these waterfront gay bars the ones that were very politically mobilized and organized, the ones that had fundraisers. To raise legal defense funds, the ones where Jose Sereio traveled around and, and got people to register to vote, um, rallied people, the places that had um, drag shows that were also fundraisers, the places that advertised in this magazine, in this newspaper, the League of and Education, all of those places met a much more um, uh, destructive, swift, damaging, uh, violent end at the hand of. Uh, either the police and or um the urban redevelopment agency, uh, than the one that was uh across the street that was essentially uh um a a kind of managed vice dis managed vice operation uh where people were getting money and in, in you know graphs was coming out of it but uh but wasn't actually uh you know a place that its patrons were kind of politically organized or radicalized or or making any kind of claims of citizenship.
2: Hmm. Absolutely fascinating to um, hear those details and sort of see how that all happens. Um, If we bring these things together, then, what does actually happen to the queer waterfront if we fast forward to sort of the end of the 1960s? What are we looking at compared to the picture you painted us just a few decades earlier?
1: Yeah, so um, in a material sense, in a physical sense, Um, 1963, 64, 65. During those years, um, those are years of active, like physical destruction, evictions, the raising of buildings, uh, uh, and the and the rebuilding of the waterfront. Um, What I end the book with, uh, however, and I think this is important, because the book is not just about the destruction of the waterfront. Um, I, I use this term very intentionally the creative destruction of the waterfront, or the destruction and the creation of the waterfront, um, to point to the fact that um, even almost 10 years later, um, there is a kind of ongoing living, shared public memory of the waterfront as a queer place. Uh, and I and I illustrate that with this really amazing collection of photographs uh, that I found uh, that were published uh, in a fundraiser by the International Court System, this is again the organization started by Jose Saria. Uh, every year, you know, having a big, a big uh, coronation uh, ceremony to, to honor the next person who's going to be the uh, the empress for the year, the queen for the year, and so uh, in the in the program from I think it's 1972-73 um, is this really interesting photo montage it's a it's a quiz where there's there's a set of maybe forty photographs um recent photographs taken around that time nineteen seventy two of of you know you know sidewalk photos of you know parts bits and pieces of the urban you know landscape and the question is identify what this past closed gay bar was so it's 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 actually trying to remember it's, it's prompting people who are participating in this to remember, oh, 10 years ago, do you remember these places we used to hang out? These are the places that really got started on the waterfront. And, and many of them, uh, all of them that I sort of was able to, to, to sort of talk about in the book, and many of them, all of them that I just sort of mentioned by name, there are more, um, are, 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 are captured in photographs. But the photographs are, are photos of active construction sites, giant holes in the ground. Um, freeway uh, on-ramps or off-ramps, um, new parks, um, that sort of thing. They're physically torn up and they're gone, but they kind of live on uh, in, in the kind of public memory uh, of the people who um, recognize the kind of social uh, and political significance of those places, even though that they were long gone. So they were they were not ephemeral places, they were formative places. Um, and And then beyond that, um, you know many of the oral histories that that i, I drew from many of them were t- were were collected in the late 70s to the to the early 90s um you know that's several decades even later where people are, are looking back all the way uh to the late 40s early 50s and, and reminiscing about these places these places are uh were powerful uh in uh in, informative in in the lives of a number of people who kind of moved through them that uh are places that, that that kind of arouse their sense of sort of social solidarity and their kind of political consciousness.
2: Hmm.
1: Fascinating. But they're all gone. They're all gone. And I, I guess I would, I would also sort of add here. Um. I I think it would be a, a pretty compelling. I think the book provides a really compelling argument uh, for actually renaming what was Justin Herman Plaza, uh, renaming it Jose Sarria Plaza, uh, because it really documents and shows. Uh, this really untold, unknown, previously unknown, unrecognized history, queer history of the waterfront that was that was intimately tied to uh, the history of urban renewal and urban redevelopment in San Francisco.
2: Who knows? Maybe it will be renamed. That would be pretty cool. Um, but even if it isn't, having this history, being able to engage with it is a massive step forward. So thank you for sharing it with us, leaving me with only my final question. Um, the book is out in the world um, pretty recently in uh, mm-hmm. the last few weeks, but it is available for people to go uh, read and get so many more details than we could possibly cover. Um, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us?
1: That's a great question. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I... I'm taking a little bit of a breather, but my my is really now Very are focused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Um it's been a haul. Um my energies are now really on on ensuring that 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 the stories that I've kind of recounted and the, the life histories of the people that were integral into kind of um uh transforming the city, uh and and also ways of thinking about sexuality in profound ways. That it that reaches a wider audience. So that's that's my main focus right now to make sure that the book um, is does not become just an interesting footnote, but but actually uh, really helps us sort of change um, our thinking about uh, what mobilizes people uh, to work together. What are the what are the what are the what's the nature of sort of social solidarity, and, and what are the possibilities and prospects um, for for different forms of of queer solidarity uh, in in, in world making, in place making, in world making. So that's, that's the first thing. And then I guess the second thing I would say, I, I really am, you know, th- there's much more that didn't actually make it on the pages of the book. Um, mm-hmm. There are other stories of urban redevelopment in the city of San Francisco and how given multiple options of how to transform and tear down parts of the city and rebuild it, uh, they, they leaned on and they focused on and they targeted the queer spaces as the places to sort of locate um, and prioritize redevelopment. So there's a, some of those that I want to sort of follow along with, with articles. Um, and then I would really like to know more about, um, I think there's much more to say about, um, about Jose Saria, about, about Jose Saria um, and in uh, his, his role in, in, in creating the, the, uh, uh, the court system and the larger sort of national and even international sort of footprint of, of, of queer social solidarity and kind of queer bar publics that that are still present today that 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 are part of this earlier formula that kind of came out of this 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 sort of past moment so so following that thread forward is is also something I'd be very much interested in doing
2: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that preview. And I think it's even more reason for people to um, read the book because you're still working on a lot of these topics. So again, the title is The City Aroused, Queer Places and Urban Redevelopment in Post-War San Francisco, published by the University of Texas Press in January 2024. So really, thank you so much, Damon, for talking to us about the book and talking to us, you know, right when it's come out. So thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you so much, Miranda. I really appreciate, appreciate the opportunity.